Welcome back for another episode of The Break Room. I'm your host, Morgan Hensley, and in this special episode, we're sharing an insightful, intimate, and intriguing conversation between two industry thought leaders, Privia Health CEO Sean Morris and Dr. Paul H. Keckley, Managing Editor of The Keckley Report. A leading healthcare policy analyst and sought-after advisor, Dr. Keckley has helped healthcare organizations develop long-term strategies for sustainability, advocacy, and growth. This 40-minute fireside chat is moderated by Mike Flamini, Chief Business Development Officer at Privia Health. Our guests examine politics and policy, as well as trends and challenges to explore healthcare's most pressing questions, such as, what is the future of healthcare under the Biden administration? How must the industry adapt to disruption caused by big tech? Why are forward-looking health systems seeking partnerships to help align and engage doctors? Which factors are changing health systems' long-term strategies? How is value-based care evolving to address efficiency, costs, safety, and outcomes, and much more? I'll now pass the mic over to Mike to explore the past, present, and future of healthcare with our guests. Hi, I'm Mike Flamini, the Chief Development Officer at Privia Health, and I'm honored today to be sitting with Paul Keckley of the Keckley Report and Sean Morris, the CEO of Privia Health. We hope you enjoy this unique format where we can hear from both Paul and Sean on their thoughts of the state of healthcare in the United States. Paul, let's start with you. The Keckley Report has become a must read. Tell us why you started it and what you hope to achieve. I started it because um the focus of the thought leadership and trend analysis in healthcare was all sector specific. And I was looking at healthcare more broadly than any one sector, hospital plan, whatever. Uh, and I wanted to assimilate what was out there to monitor trends and issues and then uh, condense that into something that people would have as a discussion on their Monday morning back in the office. Uh, it's been going 20 years. And <laughs> uh, it's kind of ironic because I've not started any week knowing what I would write about that week. Sean, as the CEO of Privia Health, please talk about the mission and purpose of the company. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here with you, Paul. The um, Privia, we're really building a tech-driven, the next generation physician organization. We all know there's physician organizations have been out there for years and they've they come in many shapes and form. And, we, we truly believe that um, you know, physicians today face a lot of challenges. You know, just the challenges of everybody, you know, everybody the last 20 years wants physicians to move to value-based healthcare. We know that's very cumbersome. Um, and, and then they um, just running the, their the everyday practice challenges are they come up you know, weekly, annually, just gets more difficult. And then last but not least, how do you bring consumer-friendly technology, introduce it into the practice, that, that not just beneficial to the patient, but at the end of the day, lowers healthcare costs and you know, it improves quality. And of course, gives a patient th that differentiated experience, but more importantly, how do you cobble those three things together and improve the well-being of the provider? And that's really what we're trying to accomplish at Privia. So let's zoom in over, say, the last 12 months since the pandemic. Uh, in this uh, environment, there uh, are a number of physician enablement companies, including Privia. 
How has how have things changed in the last 12 months in your mind? You know, it's um, it's interesting. It's just you know, I'll use telehealth as an example. It's only a, a tool. Um, we we see it as a tool. It's not the answer to healthcare. There's lots of telehealth companies out there, but just take that one simple thing, that one tool that every doctor needs. Not not in a. We believe you know my you know putting telehealth into our tech stack, into our solution, into the workflow. A physician really doesn't want to exit that workflow. They want to utilize that. We all know what happened during the pandemic with with telehealth. We went from you know even at Privia you know, a few hundred visits a week to, to 8,000 a day to doing over 800,000. But I, I say that because just it really gets back to that, you know, differentiated experience for the consumer, providing all kinds of tools, all those things that drive lower cost and better quality and provide a different, you know, different experience for that patient. But at the same time, how do you do that in a way that's, you know, relieving administrative burden? And then, you know, in the pandemic, I think it really, you know, it really kind of came to roost, for lack of a better word, but the providers out there, they needed a partner. They needed a partner. It was, um, you know, it was difficult. Um, a lot of folks didn't have, you know, telehealth. They didn't have a partner that was really focused on, you know, how to grow their practice, how to do that in a way that was smart for the provider, you know, again, you know, alleviating as much of that burden as possible, but at the same time, you know, bringing new revenue streams and doing it in a way that lowers healthcare costs and then, and improves the well-being of their practice. Paul, let's take a much longer term view of physician enablement. Compare and contrast the organizations and capabilities of today with what we saw 20 years ago, 30 years ago with what was referred to as physician practice management companies. Yeah, well the structure of the physician market dramatically changed. AMA's latest report uh, this month says 49.2 percent of the docs are now in large group settings and are employed. Um, and then another group are contracted exclusively to a health system or a health plan. So there's fewer than, you know, one in five that's independent and truly independent. So that's structurally a big change. Um, payment kind of came and went. There were moments of capitation and then there were moments of pullback from capitation. So that's been a fluid part of the physician practice environment. Um, and then business models interrupted the way doctors were thinking about their future. So the practice management industry was birthed. Um, 50 some odd companies selling a transaction. We're going to pay goodwill and we're going to buy the practice, which turned out to be a fundamental flaw in that business model because doctors are not uh, they're attentive to you know what their practice is worth today, but they're more focused on what's going to happen tomorrow to their patients, to their ability to be autonomous in their clinical judgment, but efficient because they're not stupid. So I think that business model context changed. And now I think lastly, uh, you've got capital partners coming into the physician market in a way that we didn't see um, even back in the practice management company era. There are 300 plus transactions with practices last year involving private equity roll-up, single specialty, multi-specialty. So it's a different world for the docs. Um, and I think the ones whose heads are spinning are the mid-career doctors who are kind of looking at their options, not the young folks at you know Vanderbilt and other places in med school, but 
that mid-career doc saying, I know the future is not a repeat of the past. I've got to figure out something new and look myself in the mirror in the morning and think I'm doing God's work. I think that's kind of where we are. Let's talk about change overall in the healthcare system. The new administration, um, how would you describe the pace of change that's going on right now across all sectors? And what would be the one or two things you think that executives are maybe not paying enough attention to? Yeah, good question, Mike. Um, the pace is slow because politics slows progress. Policy is always uh, subordinated to the politics, and the politics of healthcare is very partisan and factious and uh, kind of radical incrementalism. You know, we bump a little thing up the hill a little bit. Uh, but where it's headed is a collision course because health spending is um, out of sight and we're going to have to come to grips with how much the federal deficit impacts what we can spend in Medicare, Medicaid, and then in the commercial market, do employers say, well, I'm willing to pay uh, what you think you don't get paid from Medicare and Medicaid. I'll w I'm willing to pay that additional. I think all that's on a collision course with the federal debt, with monetary policy, uh, and that means it's a food fight, right? Everybody's going to be at the table fighting for a pie. It's going to continue to grow, but it doesn't grow as fast. So now you say, I want a bigger than my share of that pie, which means you get less than your share. So it's going to be tough. I'd, I'd say the Biden philosophy is kind of a center left philosophy. And where that's going to impact uh, medical practices is a lot of scrutiny about their uh, equity and diversity policies. It'll impact Privia with its ESG uh, policies. Uh, and it's not just uh, an afterthought. You're talking about what CEOs may not be paying as much attention to. Uh, there is a very uh, latent Occupy Healthcare movement afoot in this country that says, we think you folks put profit above purpose. You put profit above everything else. They don't exactly know where to apply that pressure. Drug manufacturing seems to be a convenient punching bag for that today, but I think it will be pervasive across the system. So we have to answer the question, what value do we bring? How do we provide the value that addresses efficiency, affordability, safety, and outcomes, and you can't do that without saying that also involves your own personal accountability, which is individual patients. So it's a big deal. It's a much bigger deal than we anticipate. Sean, let's stick to this theme of value that Paul raised. From the physician's lens, uh, one of the movements is to demonstrate physicians can create more value for the system and their patients in the payment models, risk-taking being one of them. How would you assess uh, how things are going on the risk-taking front with doctors? Yeah, it's, Mike, it's an interesting question because um, in today's world, and I'll say in the sector of the market, um, there's a lot of, it just seems like there's a, a lot of, I guess, the market is valuing full global risk. And it's interesting because, you know, that, that's nothing new. It's been going on for, you know, 30 years. And 
IPAs have taken full global risk for 30 years, medical groups and clinic models, have, that's been going on that length of time too. And whereas, I mean, we're a big believer with a physician, it doesn't, if, if, if a group signs a full global risk contract on Friday, they're, they're not gonna wake up on Monday and understand you know, how, to, how to take risk in that environment. You, you, we, we believe in an approach where you, you, know, you really educate the physician, you build physician leadership, you align with the payer, whoever's funding healthcare, understanding you know, what the solutions you need to, to kind of bring that payer, and then in turn, you walk that provider up that, you know, up that staircase to full global, global risk over a period of time. And I think the worst thing that can possibly happen, I think, you know, you were talking about in the 90s a while ago, um, that if you go too quickly and that doctor fails, that group fails, and it, I mean, from a pure failure or just fails as an individual, you set yourself back years because their, you know, their confidence has been broken that they can really, because I believe doctors can, most every doctor can practice value-based care with the right tools, the right partner. We've, I think we're proving that. But at the same time, if you move too quickly, and they, you break that confidence or that trust, you set yourself back years. And I think we've, we've done some of that over the last few years. The country has a tax you know, I guess, a, you know, from a, and the payers have done that. So I think it's, you, you have to walk them there and you write, you align the incentives appropriately, build physician leadership, bring them the tools. We all know what technology ha exists today and it's gonna even continue to get better and which didn't exist back in the 90s. It really wasn't bringing any value from a technology perspective or efficiency. And then you need scale. You don't do this with, you know, 10 doctors in a, in a, in a city. You do, you, to move a market to value base, you need attributed lives. You need large actuarial, you know, components of lives. And you do that by building, you know, we, in our model, very large medical groups that cover large geographies and they cover every patient cohort. Because a doctor doesn't just want to practice value-based care, global cap, whatever we call it, on Medicare Advantage, they want to offer value-based care and bring you know you know value into that community, regardless of who walks through their front door or, as we were talking a while ago, whoever they see virtually. Paul, the government's played an important role, really, since the Affordable Care Act got passed, introducing ACOs, other alternative payment models. What's your evaluation? of those and what do you think needs to happen to ensure long-term success from the government's point of view on payment reform? Well, I was in the middle of those discussions in the Affordable Care Act in 0910 as, as the uh, private sector and government were coming together. Uh, and now, as you know, we've got 55 of those uh, various alternative payment models that are out there in various forms, bundled payments, uh, Medicare shared savings programs, direct contracting and the Biden administration has put kind of a hold on a lot of that uh, based on analyses that said uh, it didn't save Medicare as much money as promised or it didn't improve the quality that was uh, anticipated. So uh, I've concluded that they'll be back. They'll be back with a certain tweaking of the measures that allow them to embed equity into the patient experience data sets uh, so that that's a kind of a cardinal theme of the Biden administration and that they uh, probably require more participation than we saw in the past. Most of these were voluntary. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> the voluntary folks that did well were the ones that were experiencing risk and the ones that didn't do too well weren't. So I think they're back and I think they'll be back in a, a different form with the muscle of Medicare behind them, but watch for uh, Medicaid managed care to follow. I think that becomes kind of the one-two punch of government. Paul, do you think that, because you had mentioned the kind of the, the equity piece and they're going to, Biden being focused there? His, um... Yeah, because the, as you know, a lot of the risk scoring that allowed us to benchmark savings didn't consider factors uh, like these social determinants or ethnicity or things. And we've discovered those as fundamental flaws. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's a matter of uh, flaws in a well uh, thought out strategy to shift incentives from fee for service to value. And in private companies like Privia, you're gonna do things that don't work and mm -hmm. then you're gonna adjust. Right. That's what they're doing. They're making adjustments, but they're not going away. Mm -hmm. um, Paul, let me quote something that you had written in the Keckley report from April 12th. Uh, so bear with me when I go through this and then I'd like to understand what you think the implications of this are for the industry. So what you had written for the industry's traditional players, hospitals, physicians, health insurers, and large employers, the issues are not new. The triple aim, improved quality, increased access, and lower costs are old hat. What's new is the combination of the new administration, the post-pandemic economy, and the accessibility of private investment in healthcare vis-a-vis -vis private equity, venture capital, SPACs, and strategic investors, including big tech, that are anxious to carve out their piece of an attractive pie. So when you look at the totality of these disruptors coming into the industry, talk about what you think the, the broad implications of this are. Uh, well, scale. Um, what's common with a lot of these folks is they're accessing capital to scale up quickly. So I, when Sean's talking about the scale and the markets that you've entered, uh, that's critical, but it's also critical uh, across your supply chain, your ability to purchase and a variety of others. So I think that's a key. Uh, second, it, it's not a surprise that big tech has taken a look at healthcare and said, you folks operate too slow. We'd rather get forgiveness than ask permission. We're not paralyzed by regulation or yesterday's norms. And I think that will force us to accelerate and adapt. Um, you know, when you're looking at access to data real time, uh, we had huge fights in the hospital sector about the worthwhileness of having electronic health records. And big tech looks at that and said, are you serious? That was yesterday's problem. Tomorrow's problem is equipping patients, individuals, consumers with data in their cell phone, in their smartwatch, to tell them what the treatment options are, what it's gonna cost them with their insurance, who the providers are that align with that kind of care, and what the expected outcome and complications gonna be, and deliver to them real time, that day, based on their own data. So I think tech's great. I think tech pushes us where we're uncomfortable, but we have to go. Sean, I'd be interested in your oh, response yeah. to that no, as well. No doubt. I, I just, um, and, I mean, we believe in scale. We were talking about it. You're just, um, 
I think the models of yesteryear didn't have the, the technologies that exist today. And I think, you know, we live in a world of what you're saying, Paul, Amazon or, you know, or somebody like that that says, hey, you know, healthcare is the only, you know, industry. And, and, that, and maybe yesteryear didn't matter as much because it was being funded primarily by someone else where we all now we're seeing, you know, those first dollar coverages are much greater on individuals and families. And, and it's, um, and their people are a little more, they want to be more educated. They want to know what their cost is. They want to know, you know, can they see their doctor and, and actually, and can they do it now? That why should I have, to, if I'm well, why should I have to drive across town, find a place to park, get my kids out of school to, you know, for them to see a, yeah. you know, the pediatrician for seven or eight minutes and maybe get in a vaccination. You know, it, I mean, it's just, um, there's just, you know, healthcare is changing and the world is pushing us to do that. Um, and I think, you know, that that's that kind of one of those challenges, you know, I, I spoke about earlier, the, you know, the running of a doctor's package, it's not, yeah, there's regulations and all those things, but it's how do you meet that consumer using technology where they want to be met? Because maybe, you know, everybody, you know, talks about small panel sizes are needed, maybe for certain cohorts, yes, but there's certain cohorts that of patients that maybe are going to have large panel sizes and it's going to be digital first and then when they need to see the patient they get them in and see them. I, I just think um, and technology is going to have a massive play there and um, that's why we go back to that my earlier comment around telemedicine. It's only a tool and if done wrong you know incorrectly it fragments healthcare even more than healthcare is fragmented today and I you know like I think we'd use the example if you're on vacation and you, you're, you're in Florida and something happens to one of your kids and you know, it's, not a, it's not an urgent thing, but they need to, they need to they, they come up with a rash or something. I mean, it'd be better, and we think, if we see your primary care physician, your pediatrician, that you see back wherever you live, they prescribe something, you pick up the local medicine, you go back, and then they've already made an appointment and, you, and they come in and, and they see you a few days later when you get home, versus if you don't do it that way, that encounter is lost out there floating around in the healthcare system forever and you got to go back and then you repeat all maybe more testing and why did you you know what happened to the child and all those things and i i just think we really need to be thinking about that and technology allows us to to do a lot of those things mm -hmm. we still see and this is a question for both of you the ability to get to scale through consolidation so this has been going on a long time the insurance sector is largely consolidated uh, the hospital sector continues to consolidate both horizontally and vertically with hospitals buying doctors and other uh, aspects of the delivery system. Uh, if you are an independent medical group practice or an independent hospital, what do you think the outlook is for their ability to remain independent as everything around them is consolidating? I'd say questionable, bleak. Um, unless you're a big independent entity. Um, but scale does have downside. You give up a certain amount of autonomy. Um, but that's the cost of the capital that you need to compete long term. And across every sector, the irony is uh, consolidation has accelerated and was accelerating pre-pandemic. Um, relief funds are not adequate to keep a lot of folks that were at the table in a discussion from going back to those discussions because we're going to see more consolidation. And that will draw the attention of the regulators. The Federal Trade Commission just added its third Democrat uh, to the commission and they've targeted 
hospital consolidation is one of those focus areas along with big tech. So I think we're going to have to be attentive to the fact the regulator is going to pay a lot of attention to this. But to achieve scale, there aren't too many options, and that's the one that makes the most sense. Sean, how about from your yeah, perspective? Yeah, um, gosh, you know, I met Paul. I don't know, <laughs> Paul's a little scary. Maybe it's 25 years ago. I, I don't know. Um, in that, you know, when the PPM industry was consolidating the first time, and, you know, it, it's, um, and physicians are the last in the ecosystem to be you know, I'll, I'll, you know, kind of consolidated in any really, I'd say more organized because there, I mean, there's literally, you know, gosh, there's a million physicians out there, call it 45% primary care, the rest specialty, and, and um, they're not really organized in any shape or form where payers have consolidated, we all know that, really kind of to their maximum limit. That was all tested a few years back. We all know about the health systems. There's probably, in most sizable communities, you know, a couple of real choices. And um, so I go to the physicians and, and I just think they, you know, not consolidate for the sake of consolidation because of Paul's right. I mean, they are looking for autonomy. They really want autonomy in decision making. They want to, and it, you know, I think the Privia model, it allows them to be autonomous. It allows them to keep their current ownership structure, participate in a much larger organization. They can participate in governance if they choose to. They have access to kind of next generation technology, um, talent that understands, you know, risk taking at its highest levels, you know, where some of our team and, you know, has been, been in the, you know, kind of building insurance companies forever. We understand that. And then, but I, I think they just, so they're part of something, they have autonomy, they get to make decisions about their practice, but, you know, they have a partner that's kind of driving them in those really tough decisions. And then, they, they go to market as a really large-scale medical group that covers, in most of our instances, an entire state. And interesting enough, that's what payers are looking for because they know it's difficult to go out and organize the ones and the twos and the, you know, and the fives and the tens and even the 150s. They, they want scale to deliver value-based care and to move a market regardless of the patient cohort. They really want to see value-driven in every single patient cohort. Privia started as an organization, as you've mentioned, focused around independent mm -hmm. medical groups. Mm -hmm. I think you'd agree that we've developed a valuable solution as a partner for health systems as well, specifically around their physician alignment strategy and their needs to deliver more value to community physicians and, when needed, to their employed medical groups. Talk about that model a little bit and what you're seeing as the next trend over the upcoming years around hospitals and physician alignment and new models that you might see emerging. Yeah, Mike, as you mentioned, I mean, we really, the, we started with the independent physicians and we've kind of up to 2,700, you know, providers out there today, six states, um, with the District of Columbia, 650 care center locations, so you get to that scale. And I think, you know, three years ago, the, the, you know, it wasn't we're out there looking for health systems, but that call came in and said, hey, we're really looking to solve, you know, two or three things. We want to, we need better technology for our medical group. This was a health system down in Florida. We, um, our doctors do really well. Um, and we, you know, we, we, you know, we have a group of roughly 400, but at the same time, we own our own insurance company and we participate in value-based products um, in other insurers and they don't, they do okay, but they don't do well in that environment. Could you kind of help us bring us another governance model, help us with incentives, provide the technology in order to improve in those areas? And um, 
interesting enough, it's been a great relationship that, that began with Health First. We've done some other since. But it's, um, I think it's, it's not going to be for every health system. I, um, it's for those, I, I call them forward-leaning. I mean, this is a health system, like I said, that own their own health plan, you know, and, and there's a lot of them that do, but almost every health system has to build better muscle memory and how to produce kind of value in value-based arrangements. Now, I mean, we'll see. Um, I don't know that some of them will go off that, that, that bridge, but, um, it's, um, but I, think in, I think there's gonna be pressure by you know Medicare, by others, it's, you know Medicare. I think it's the biggest payer for most health systems. Paul would correct me if I'm wrong. And um, I think um, a model such as Privia, where we and we say we know doctors, we bring physician alignment. I think we're great listeners. Every health system is unique because they've got a unique geography. They've got uniqueness around their their um, their payer mix and their health system. I mean, and their physician. So it's you know what's a model that'll work for them and solve really you know get at this, the issues they're trying to solve and and you know this is what we do every single day i mean not health, not all health systems core competencies are building and aligning physicians be that employed or even those independents that are so important to their strategy long term in the market yeah paul let's stick to that core competency question you spend a lot of your time in the boardrooms of health systems mm -hmm. talking to their executives their boards um, coming together these trends that we've talked about today, consolidation, perhaps more government uh, scrutiny over that consolidation, multiple disruptive models that are now here and doing things with private practice physicians. What are health system executives saying about the future of their physician strategy? I think there's a lot of anxiety um, because the alternative payment models is one discussion that they have with the doctors and they can't be certain about the future of those or the timing of those. Um, they're aware that uh, payers are aggregating doctors and employing doctors and uh, disintermediating the hospital and the doctors, which they have always kind of seen as a family. Um, third, they're um, increasingly aware of the dynamic primary care is playing in the scheme of healthcare. That the pandemic punctuated because public health and social determinants and um, the inequity of who got vaccinated and who didn't kind of was a you know gut punch to health systems that held all their investment in specialty practices. So they're having a discussion now about what kind of primary care do we need to develop and how do we develop that. And, um, I don't think there's, in the view of most health systems, a question that they recognize that physician organizations are the epicenter of the future system of health. Not the bricks and sticks, but it's the physician organization that operates organically. It, it is an entity, it's not a doctor. Uh, getting from here to there is hard for them because the doctors that perhaps yesterday were the key to their top line may tomorrow not be as much. Or uh, the doctors that have been uh, ineffective, they really didn't have to address that, either clinically or otherwise. I think they're now having to deal with that kind of stuff. 
Um, it's, it's an uncomfortable discussion in a boardroom about how do you go from 1,500 physician relationships to an organism with six to 900 high-performing mm -hmm. practitioners. And the board know and play golf or socialize with those 600 that at some point you're saying, you just didn't make the cut. So that's the reason uh, having a, a partnership with somebody that can bridge the divide between current state of physician organizations, which are aggregations, right, to high-performing POs is something that they need help. And they recognize it. Uh, some speak that directly and some are a little coy about it. Some think they can still do it on their own and some think, I want to get out ahead. Here's my uh, sense. This is one where you have to get ahead. It's not as easy to pull this off. It takes longer. It's more capital intense. Um, and we can't be timid about it. We got to go there. Mm -hmm. yeah, let me add to that. Let me get your opinion, Paul. So, I mean, because I, the way we look at it is, you know, as the, the movement of values, it, to me it's about, I mean, just if you think just from an actuarial perspective, obviously, you know, you know, one of my mentors and you want to, you know, <laughs> that's what he was. And so um, it's, um, I mean, you, ha you need large bases of attributed lives. And, and no doubt health systems understand that concept. They, you know, today they're, it's more about fee for service life. So think at preview, we actually, for over 3 million patients today, 700,000, roughly a little over 700,000 had attributed lives to, to, in value-based arrangements to those doctors. And as we were talking a little while ago, doctors don't learn how to practice in that environment right. overnight. So you have to kind of, yeah, to back to, I think what you were saying was, it, we need to go there and we need to kind of, you need to kind of get your feet in the water, have a plan and have a, because it doesn't happen in 12 months, 24 months. And so it's like, how do you have a plan that walks them there in a confident way? And not just the doctor in, it, in this health system scenario, but what's that health system's role? Yep. And how are they going to do well in that environment also? And it's going to take a while. Yep. I mean, it's not overnight. I think it's three years if you started fresh today to be able to achieve that end of, I've got a high-performing physician organization. And that's if all the ducks line up perfectly with physician leaders and data and stuff like that. So it's hard. Mm -hmm. So let me end on, on this big, big picture question. Get your crystal balls out a little bit here. What does good look like for healthcare in the United States over the next five to 10 years, given the radical incrementalism that you talked about when we started and we understand things change a little bit more slowly than most people realize. But what do you think good that is better than today will look like five, 10 years from now? At a system level, um, a system whose spend on a per capita basis is probably at 3% per year or less. It can't exceed those numbers for the rest of the economy to, to flourish. And right now, as you know, we end up at one and a half to two and a half percent above uh, GDP growth and inflation and things. So I think it has to hit as part of the economy not, and not be dilutive to the rest of the economy on a per capita basis, not the aggregate spend base. Um, and at the system level, 
what I look for is a system that transitions from episodes of acute care and the ancillaries around that to managing populations at full risk. Um, and those systems in which health and well-being are defined and they're pursued and they're programmatic. It's not just an afterthought on the website. It's not just treating that case or that uh, procedure, but it's whole person, which brings a whole new dimension to health, which is exactly where healthcare is going. So I think all of that kind of comes together and the physicians um, can make that transition. Uh, some it'll be more difficult than others. Sean, your, your thoughts on that question? Yeah, um, I'll kind of, I'm gonna stick to kind of the physician side of it because I believe to get there, and I, I think Paul agrees with this, um, you have to have high-performing physician organizations now, and, and which is, I get asked that question a lot. How many of there? How many medical groups will there be in ten years from now? You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, probably less than there are today. I think there'll be in in other structures, and I think there's a lot of complementary models that are out there, and, and that, I wouldn't even say they're in their infancy. They've been around a long time, but they're becoming more. I think I guess corporatized, mainstream, that there's complementary models. Even in our sector, physician enablement, there's everywhere from employing clinic into, you know, single single product to all the way, you know, kind of commercial or Medicare Advantage, all the way to that, you know, that next generation IPA model. And then here, our model, where we're building these large medical groups. And I, I think it's back to physicians need a choice. I mean, in their, I think through their careers, Maybe when they're younger, they're, they're a little more apt to be employed, you know, raising a family, have some debt. As they grow, get a little more confidence in their skill set. They want to get out and maybe, you know, practice in a, in a more um, autonomous way with inside a group and, and so forth. So I think you have different models. And I think the level of um, sophistication will absolutely grow. Technology will be involved. I think we'll provide a lot more care at home. I think a lot more care virtually. In, in, an, in an interesting way for, you know, we were talking about it maybe a little bit earlier, was, um, and some of those cohorts will have very large panel sizes that, you know, think about that, the, you know, that digital first, but eventually, you know, unless we all find the fountain of youth, you, you, you know, a, a physician or provider needs to lay hands on you at some point in your life. It's, you just can't access your care digitally. But um, I think there'll, there'll be some, you know, continued development of, of, uh, of tools and scale um, you know, workflow will be absolutely critical, you know, to a, to a provider's office to do that in a way that is meeting the patient where they want to be met. You know, can we drive costs down? I think we can in some, but there's going to be, you know, there's, there's going to be very expensive um, pharmaceuticals that'll be out there and all those things that'll drive health care. And what, I think in Paul's example, can we limit that to 3% or less a year? Uh, but I think the, an aligned model, and I agree with Paul, with increasing levels of risk, with that doctor care, you know, care team at the center, kind of quarterbacking that is, is critical to, to success. Paul, last word. It's a good time to be in healthcare. You know, I've, I've been at this a long time and I've never seen a point at which we've had to consider external forces in a fresh way like we are today. 
and it's simply by reading the press releases from the Amazons and the Walmarts and all the players, Microsofts, who are in our business that weren't before. Now, that causes me to pause, and I think it's good. I agree. I think we'll have partnerships with maybe, you know, with um, maybe that we used to think of as competitors. Um, and I think it's, we, you have to take that philosophy, even in the technology space, should you build it, buy it, or partner? And then there's going to be very unique partnerships, you know, kind of like the one we're talking about in health systems with building high-performing physician organizations on behalf of the health system, partnering very closely with them, and then going out together and taking that risk. You know, and um, but that's what'll be good for you know those communities that those health systems are serving, along with those doctors. And I think that's what they want to go do. But at the same time, I think they recognize that you know they don't have all the skill sets to go do it. And if it's if they're really focused on speed to market, which Paul mentioned earlier, I think um, um, you know it'll be some very unique partners that'll that'll come together. Great, Paul Keckley, Sean Morris, thank you both for participating today and sharing your great insights. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it insightful and thought-provoking. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of The Break Room. If you'd like to learn more, I encourage you to listen to episode 35, in which I discuss physician enablement with Sean Morris and Dr. Keith Fernandez, Chief Clinical Officer at Privia Health. You can also find their article called Helping Doctors Help Patients, The Six Key Points of Physician Enablement, on Informed, the blog by Privia Health. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and blog to stay up to date on all things healthcare. I hope you enjoyed the episode today, and I'll see you next month for another episode of The Break Room. So stay tuned.